Hello everybody, uh, it's good to see you all this morning. Uh, if you want to keep your Bibles open at John chapter 14, we're looking at today that great statement of Jesus, I am the way, the truth and the life. And so I'll be preaching from what we've just read from John chapter 14 verses 1 to 7, but I thought it would be helpful to read from the end of chapter 13 as a way of um, introduction, if you like, as we see the events that build up to that great claim of Jesus, uh, as well as that be helpful to refer to chapter 13 as well but it's chapter 14 i'll be preaching uh, from today i can also take this opportunity to thank everyone for all your kindness since lexi was born um, for your uh, meals and your prayers uh, and your presence is really really kind of you um lexi's six and a half months old now can't believe how time flies and uh, she's developing into a real character uh, so uh, want to thank you for uh, all your uh, support and continual support. Um, we thank you for that. Um, before we start, let's pray. And so, Father, we pray that you would quiet our hearts, that you would take away all distractions, that everyone here will listen, uh, will listen well as we look into your word. We pray also for me that when I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mysteries of the gospel. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you're like me uh, and uh, you like Lord of the Rings. I, I'm a big fan of the book, and I personally thought uh, Peter Jackson did a great job at the, uh, of the movie trilogy. And so if you're familiar with the films, you'll remember that in the first film, The Fellowship of the Ring, the High Elf Lord Elrond summons a secret council meeting addressing the issue of who is going to take the Ring of Power and throw it into the Lake of Fire from whence it came. And while the uh, council is arguing about who should go on this suicide mission, it's here Hobbit, uh, the Hobbit Frodo um, volunteers and says, I will take the ring. I will take the ring to Mordor, although I do not know the way. And so Gandalf the wizard steps forward and says in my best Serene McKellen accent, I will gladly bear this burden with you, Frodo Baggins. Um, I'm not bad at impressions. I'm not very good at a lot of things, but I'm not bad at impressions. Uh, <laughs> So he basically says, I, I will gladly bear this burden. Basically, he was saying, I will show you the way. It's always helpful when someone shows you the way. When my older sister and I were younger, we would often help my dad on the farm. And I remember one job every year was to gather the sheep off the moor and to bring them back to the farm for lambing time. And so if you're old enough to walk, you're old enough to go on the moor and gather sheep. That's how my dad rolled in our house. And I remember we'd all pile into the tractor and dad would drop us off and say, you and Claire go to one end of the moor and I'll go to the other. You start off at Brailsford's Woods, bring the sheep down towards Ernest Needham's and I'll meet you somewhere at Tom's Oval and they just drive off in the tractor. Uh, great, who's Ernest Needham's? Where's Tom? Where's his hovel? I'm sure Tom is a nice guy, but we, don't, we had no idea who he was. Um, on the few occasions we did ask my dad, where Tom's Oval was or something like that. He would just say, you know where I mean, and then just drive off anyway. <laughs> or he would actually point to a landmark, like a tree that had um, fallen down and cleared away 10 years before you were actually born. So he had no idea where you were going. We were lost. We needed directions. We needed to know the way. Uh, Dad normally found us three or four days later on the moors. Maybe that's a slight exaggeration there. But, but this is how I imagine the disciples must have felt. They must have felt confused, needing clear direction. Now, here, what we've just read is the last time Jesus is addressing his friends before 
uh, being arrested and taken to the cross. In fact, this conversation is being held in the upper room the night Jesus was going to be portrayed by Judas. In fact, in the previous chapter, we see that Jesus predicts his betrayal. He lets Judas, the betrayer, go in order to tell the chief priest the precise location of where he's going to be so Jesus could be arrested and ultimately led away to be crucified. It's all happening on this night. And so, as far as the disciples were concerned, it's going to be a night like no other, a night of worry, confusion, a night of, I'm sure, many questions. But, of course, Jesus knows all this, doesn't he? And so, let's look again uh, at chapter 14, starting at verse 1. Look down with me. Jesus speaking here. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. This is a good place to start, isn't it? Straight away, Jesus is aware of the fact that his disciples' hearts were troubled. They're anxious. Now, please note, Jesus isn't saying it's wrong to have troubled hearts. He's not saying we should take from this that we should never have any concerns. We should never have uh, any troubles in our lives. Jesus himself, we read, also had concerns. As fully human, he knew what it was to know concerns. He knew what it was to have worries. Again, talking about his betrayer, Judas, we, we read in the chapter previous, in chapter 13, verse 21, Jesus was troubled in spirit and to testify very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Jesus, here we read, was troubled in spirit. He knew one of his own was going to betray him. We looked last time at the story of Lazarus where Jesus wept over losing his friend. And of course, Jesus sweat drops of, uh, sweat drops of blood, didn't he, in the Garden of Gethsemane before his arrest, knowing what was before him the price he will pay for others by facing and dying on the cross. Jesus knows what it is to be troubled. And so he's not challenging his disciples in the fact that it's wrong to have troubled hearts, but he's more addressing their lack of faith in this instance. You see, he's comforting them as they're confused, as they show a lack of understanding in Jesus and what he really came to earth to do. It's uh, fine to have worries. It's all part of being human, isn't it? But when it comes to the matters of the heart, when it comes to your eternal hope, your identity, your everlasting security, your eternal joy, it's Jesus we must trust. So Jesus is telling them, basically, don't worry. Don't panic. You see, the disciples have just heard Jesus tell them that he's going away, meaning that he's going to go very soon. It's time for him to do what he's been sent to do and die for the sins of many. They're obviously worried. They're obviously baffled men. They're confused when Jesus says, for example, in verse 33 in the previous chapter, chapter 13, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, I tell you now where I'm going, you cannot come. And so Peter panics and replies to Jesus in verse 36, where are you going? He continues in verse 37, why can't I follow you? I will lay down my life for you. Now, just imagine the shock of all the disciples. They're thinking, we've given up everything for you, Jesus. We've given up our jobs. We've given up our businesses. We've given up our family, our friends. We've literally put all our eggs in one basket. I mean, imagine in the height of summer, in the middle of making the hay, I say to my dad, Dad, I know you wanted me to take, uh, bring back those 300 bales that you just baled this afternoon while you're milking the cows. However, I've just met the, the most amazing person, and I think it's a big deal, but so, so I'm going to leave you, and I'm going to follow him. But, you know, we're cool, right? No. You see, the disciples, in the disciples' eyes, they had given up everything for Jesus. 
and is now leading them. They thought this is the chosen one. They thought this is the Messiah, the one who would eventually overthrow the Romans. They didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. They didn't know why they couldn't follow Jesus. But Jesus tells them basically to trust. It's a great reminder reminder to us, isn't it, his church, that we, of course, need to trust in the one who holds the future, who's sovereign over all things, who holds the universe in the palm of his hand. And so the disciples need to trust. It's going to be hard, but Jesus will have the ultimate victory in the end. This is the good news because he tells them in the next breath why trusting him will benefit them. Look at verse 1 again. Remember Jesus speaking. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Verse 2. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. It says here many rooms are good original translation of this is dwelling place. He's going to prepare a place in heaven so they could be with him and be with him forever. Jesus is often referred to and called the groom, isn't he? And and his church, the bride. In old Middle Eastern uh, culture, before marriage, the groom would often build a house himself. And when that house was built and made, he would then take his bride to be with him. And his bride had no idea when that time would be but she would eventually be there with him after that house was built, after that house was completely made. It's uh, it's a good job that doesn't work like that over here, doesn't it? I think I'll still be building a house with Sarah. And even then, it probably would not pass building regs, but there we go. But, But that's what would happen. It's just like Jesus when it comes to our dwelling place. If we trust in Jesus, we have no need to worry because one day we will be with him in glory in the house of the Lord forever. Whether we die or whether the groom returns for his bride, That's where we will be. It actually says many rooms. Heaven is not going to run out. Our home is secure through Jesus. That's something to hold on to. That's something to take comfort in, isn't it? So there's many rooms. Next verse 3, Jesus tells the disciples, and I go and prepare a place for you. And this struck me as a little odd. Why did Jesus use those words prepare and not already prepared? After all, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 tells us, For he chose us in him before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. If that is the case, why use this word prepare? Well, it's uh, simply it's because Jesus had not yet carried salvation's plan out. Sin had not yet been atoned for. Death is not yet defeated. The wrath of God, the condemnation, the curse of God is still unsatisfied. In only a few hours' time, Jesus is about to become a curse for us. Romans chapter 8 verse 3 tells us, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. In the next few hours, Jesus will be taken, beaten and hung on the cross for their sins and for our sins, carrying out salvation's plan and in three days later will rise again. And so for all those who believe in him, Eternal hope is secured. We who have faith can now have a home, a dwelling place fixed in heaven because of Jesus. Jesus' death bridges the gap between ourselves and the almighty God of the cosmos. He is the only one who can pay that price. He is the only one. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. So Jesus is telling them, basically, it's me that has to go. It's me and only me that can secure your eternal hope, secure an inheritance for you and all who believe in me. And that's something for all who are in Christ Jesus. Whatever trials we have in this world, we can expect one day to be with him 
in that dwelling place, that place he has prepared for us. A place and inheritance so awesome that the Apostle Paul could not describe and put into words what he saw when he was caught, caught up in the third heaven. He actually says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human mind has conceived the things God has prepared for those who love him. That's something to hold on to, isn't it? That's something to have confidence in. So here in chapter 14, to secure this joyful reality, Jesus must leave his friends and in a few hours' time face the cross. Again, the disciples, we read, are not aware yet of Jesus' destiny, not yet understanding the reality of Jesus' mission. They want to know where Jesus is going, why he must lead them. They're concerned about this place Jesus is going to. They don't know the way. They are wanting more details. And so this time it's Thomas who voices his concerns, desperate for an answer when he asks Jesus in verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Thomas, he is, I feel, the one who always wants to know everything in detail, isn't he? Always wants to know explicitly what's going on. He, he was the one who insisted on seeing Jesus after he rose from the grave and wouldn't believe unless he saw Jesus physically. Thomas needs confirmation. Maybe you're very much like Thomas yourself, always needing reassurance, always needing reassurance of what's happening now and what's going to happen later. And so with Thomas expressing this concern of not knowing the way, Jesus then switches from place to person. He has already spoken about heaven. Now he's going to explain the means of getting there. And so as the disciples want to know the way, Jesus tells them next that he is the way to this eternal dwelling place, that he confirms the truth and will purchase the life for all who believe because he is alive. Jesus answered in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So I've got basically three points. Uh, they're not very long points, but three points nevertheless. And my first point is this. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way to a perfect and everlasting dwelling place. Jesus is the means and becomes the way of getting believers to heaven. He is the means of bringing you and joining you with the Father. The only way. This is an exclusive claim of Jesus. The only way from point A to point B. It's simple. In order to know the Father, to enjoy eternal life, you must follow the way. Jesus is the, re the way. Remember back in uh, John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Like a shepherd who looks after his sheep, lays down in the entry of the sheep and literally becoming the gate to safety, protection and rest. So Jesus is our gate which we must come through in order for us to enjoy that eternal hope. He is the way in which we must come. No other way will work. No other religion will ever get you close. Nothing we can do ourselves can get us into heaven. No matter how many times we read the Bible, no matter how many times we volunteer for church activities, church attendance, flower rotors, the, the list goes on. They are filthy rags in light of a holy, perfect, completely righteous God, there's nothing we can do that can make us fit for heaven. Our ways are hopeless because of our sin. We are totally separated from God, far away. And yet God in his love and his mercy and his grace sent his son, Jesus. Jesus had no sin. He was completely perfect in every way. As 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 puts it, He who had no sin became sin so that we may become the righteousness of God. 
Jesus died in our place because he was the only one good enough to pay the price of our sin. We deserve eternal punishment, and yet Christ suffered and died so we may have a way back to the Father, to that perfect and eternal dwelling place. When Jesus died, the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom, signifying that the relationship between ourselves and God the Father has been restored. We can have complete access to God as forgiving people. All we need to do is say sorry for all the wrong and believe in the one who has made the way. I don't know if you know, but uh, Christians in the early church were known as people of the way. Unlike any way which has a start and a finish, people of the way recognize that it starts at the cross of Jesus and finishes at that perfect destination. Let me ask you, are you on the way? I'm not asking you, are you in church? I'm not asking you if you're part of a Christian family. I'm asking you, do you know Jesus personally? And what he has done to save a people from a total everlasting separation from the sovereign God of the universe. It is a terrible thing to reject the only means in which we can be saved. Jesus has opened up the way and is the only way to the Father and that perfect dwelling place. He is the way. He's the way. Next we'll see he is the truth. The only truth for the people of the way to hold on to until we get to that dwelling place. Jesus here isn't saying that he's a truth. He's not saying that he's one of many truths. He's saying he is exclusively the truth. Not merely one who points to it, but he is the absolute embodiment of truth. He can say this with certainty because he is infinitely God himself, the second in the Godhead. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is Jesus. Jesus actually says to his disciples, doesn't he? You can look down at verse 7. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. The emphasis on Jesus here as God incarnate is unmistakably clear, telling his disciples, he is God. If you know the Son, you know God the Father. They are one and yet separate persons. And so in order for us to be saved from our sins, God the Son, Christ Jesus, was sent from the Father and became a human being, full, fully man yet fully God, this is the truth. It says about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6, 7, and 8, who being very nature, God didn't consider quality with God something to be grasped, but rather he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We shouldn't make light of Jesus. We need to recognize who he is. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that he's the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. This is who Jesus is, and yet he came down to our level in order to save us. This is a wonderful truth that we must see and know. Throughout scripture, we see Jesus as the truth. The entire Bible points to this truth. Although Jesus isn't the content of it, he certainly is the center of it all. And I think we're missing the point sometimes if we think the Bible is about us. The Bible is not about us. It really isn't. For example, we read about David and we see ourselves as David, ready to throw that stone against our giants, which, which it could be our jobs, it could be our difficult marriage, it could be our ill health. 
trying to fuse ourselves into the story of David and Goliath, when in reality the story of David isn't pointing towards, but it's pointing to a God who is able, pointing to a greater David. What's our biggest giant? It's sin and death, and Christ is the one who has defeated them. We're not David, and we need to get this. We're not David. Christ is David. The story points to him because he is the truth, the only truth that can save. The Old Testament is full of Jesus. We just think of the many Old Testament prophets who spoke of Jesus. Isaiah speaks of the one who will suffer for the sins of others. He speaks of his birth. He speaks of his ministry on earth, along with many, many other prophets. Jesus, in fact, said, didn't he, to his Jewish opponents in John chapter 8, verses, uh, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. We see the evidence here of Jesus being all that he said he is. We just read the, the book of Hebrews. In it we see how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, showing that he's greater than the angels, greater than Moses, as Jesus offers to lead his people into a new creation. A priest like Melchizedek, he is the ultimate priest. He's a better priest. He's the ultimate mediator between us and God. He's the ultimate sacrifice, as we shall see in a minute, and he's the ultimate true Messiah. The entire Bible shows concrete evidence of Jesus pointing to his true identity. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church of Corinth that Jesus lived with accordance to the Bible, that with accordance to the Scriptures, he died for our sins, was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Not only that, it goes further to support who Jesus is because Paul says that he appeared to a man named Cephas and the disciples. So we see here there were eyewitness accounts of his life, of his death, and his resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus, supported by, backed up with, and accordance with the Scriptures. Eyewitness accounts from those who really knew him, his disciples. John writes in John chapter 1, verse 14, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. If you remember Peter and uh, John in front of the Sahedrin facing severe punishment after preaching the good news of Jesus with absolute confidence they tell the Jewish council and, and remember we've gone through this recently as we were looking with Andy through, the, um, through Acts. They say in chapter 4 verse 20, as for us we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. They were confident you see in what they knew was the truth. They were confident because they've seen it. Jesus is the only truth from the Father and to eternal life. The only truth we can know to get to our eternal dwelling place. The truth is knowing who Jesus is and knowing that by dying on the cross, he paid for it all. I like how one preacher put it. Jesus died and rose for our justification. His death was to pay for our sins. His rising again is the receipt of that payment. You see, we can have confidence and reassurance now because Jesus is the truth. And as his people, we too point to the truth as Jesus promised his Holy Spirit to all believers as the Holy Spirit dwells in us and transforms us into Christ-likeness by growing the fruit of the Spirit in us and by giving us gifts so that God will use us as we serve him. Let me ask you, do you see Jesus as the truth? Or do you just see him as a nice guy? Do you see him as a teacher? Do you see him as a prophet? You see, the Bible is the authoritative word of God. It's written by men, but it's inspired by God. It's inerrant, it's meaning it's without any flaw or fault. It's God's word that declares the hope 
we have in Christ Jesus. He's the truth that we cannot afford to ignore. Jesus said himself, didn't he, didn't he that the truth will set you free. Free from the enslavement of sin. Free from living with accordance to the world. How the world wants you to live. He's the wonderful truth which we must see and hold on to. He's the way, the truth. And finally, he's a life. He's a life that was purchased for us so we can go to that dwelling place. He's a life that was purchased for us so that we can go to that dwelling place. Early in John's Gospel, John chapter 5, we read that Jesus spoke to some Jewish leaders. These religious men refused to believe who Jesus was and what he came to do. In fact, they hated him and they tried to catch Jesus out. They were very religious people who believed they were far more important and superior to Jesus. They didn't believe he was God's son or the Messiah. Obviously, they didn't believe that he came to save sinners. They knew the Old Testament well and lived according to the law given to Moses, but they could not see Jesus as the one who gives eternal life. Jesus actually tells them in uh, verse 5 of chapter 5, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me to have life. You see, uh, the old way to uh, cover your sins back in the Old Testament was for, and Tiago has done, uh, again, done uh, a series on this recently in Leviticus. Uh, the old way was for there to be a sin offering in your place. And this is what the Jewish leaders believed. Back in the Old Testament, God provided a sacrificial system where atonement could be made for your sin by a priest sacrificing an animal in your place. However, this system was only temporary. It wasn't a long-term solution. It merely looked forward to the coming of Jesus. This in itself did not give you eternal life. It's Jesus who would die on the cross to make complete substitutionary atonement for sin. Only Jesus could bear our sin and the judgment we deserve. And after that, it was done. It was completely finished. God's wrath was completely satisfied. The eternal punishment for our sin fell on him, even though we are the ones who deserve it. That God gave his son as a propitiation. So now the old covenant is removed for a new covenant, a better covenant, an everlasting and joyful covenant. It's, uh, it's in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 tells us. Through God's grace, Jesus came, was obedient in life and his death. So we who believe and repent can have life, everlasting life. So we can enjoy Jesus. Our eternal dwelling place has been secured all through the blood of Jesus. You see, like those Jewish leaders people today think you get eternal life from what it is you do from your good works your good deeds the thing is they cannot get you one inch closer to that eternal dwelling place religion says my identity is built on being a good person the gospel says my identity is not built on my record or my performance but on christ it's only through the work of the cross it's only through the blood of jesus Jesus died and rose again in our place. He is the only way and the only truth and the only life that we must believe. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but should have eternal life. It starts with Jesus. Our old life has gone. A new life, a new beginning has come as Christ lives in all those who believe. This is the gospel. This is what the disciples eventually came to see. This is what Jesus meant 
when he said to the disciples in verse 36, you will follow later. So this is what the disciples eventually came to see and to live and would even eventually die for. Well, what does that mean for us today? Well, it means that we have a hope, a hope of a future as his covenant people to enjoy Christ eternally, enjoy what he has prepared for all those who love him as we become heirs and co-heirs with him. What is your hope in? When COVID started last year, we were all worried and anxious, but we had a hope, a hope that a vaccine might come, that we all get uh, dosed with this vaccine, get injected, and that things will go back to normal. We had a hope. Then they were saying, even if we had this vaccine, we don't know how effective it will be on new or different variants. You see, if we're not careful, we put our hope in things that aren't certain, that aren't reliable. But as Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, our hope, our eternal life is secured because we don't need to rely on ourselves. We don't need to rely on the world, but we can rely on God. We can praise God for that. Second, if we truly believe this reality, then why aren't we telling people about it? Why aren't we telling the nice old lady across the street? After all, she's a nice old lady. Do we not think, however nice or caring people are, that they don't need the gospel? Uh, I listened to a, a good American pastor uh, called Vody Buchan, and he said this, We go to funerals of unsaved people and listen to how they are in a better place, spending eternity with a God that they didn't want to be with down here. We don't understand how there is a need for radical redemption. We don't see the urgency. Well, I pray that as we face the world tomorrow, we won't be people who are scared of sharing the gospel, but we will be people of the way who delight in the truth, who point to Jesus as the life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is the good news, the way, the truth, and the life. Help us this week to delight in sharing that hope we have. We pray that you would give us a heart, a burden for those who don't know you, and give us courage to speak about the gospel boldly, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to sing one last time, and uh, we're going to stand for this as we sing, You Are My Anchor. <laughs>